Are we go? We are. We are go. Excellent. Okay. Um, thank you both very much for inviting me to speak. I'm very pleased to be here um, and to see such a lovely turnout. Um, so I shall start. As we know, um, anthropology as a discipline has had a very tense historical relationship with powerful institutions. As the American Anthropological Association phrases it, this is because of the discipline's historical roots as a stepchild of colonialism and more recent uses of fieldwork as a front for conducting espionage. Now, this tense relationship with powerful institutions continues to resonate strongly with the collective anthropological memory. <coughs> as a result, a political stance has been adopted that rightly identifies and represents the position and rights of minority and indigenous peoples. And in general, the discipline has taken a strong stand against the state and global capital. But this shift in political representation has had knock-on effects. And as the AAA highlights, there now appears to be a reluctance to engage with institutions that make us uncomfortable. This is also the case in the UK. And there are very few anthropologists examining, for example, the British military. And of those anthropologists that are engaging with the military, intelligence and security communities their roles and political positioning vary considerably. In fact, I think I can still make the claim, at least this was true doing my fieldwork, and you may want to correct me, that I was the only female anthropologist that had a British military identity whilst carrying out their field research. The discipline's fraught and controversial history has resulted in a sharp magnification of the risks and benefits and heightening of ethical significance of each unique context of engagement. So, in the next hour, I want to share with you some of my experiences of engaging with a powerful institution of the British military, the choices I made in negotiating this engagement, and examine some of the ways in which I collaborated in the complex environment I found myself in. Significantly and specifically, because of the choices I made, my fieldwork experiences and associated dilemmas are not so different to a traditional anthropological experience. But what is it that makes my research different? Well, it's the context. Working from within an institution of power. The sharp magnification focusing on the risks and benefits of collaboration and the potential life and death implications that such collaborations could directly and indirectly entail. And it's for these reasons that I consciously and cautiously limited the ways in which I have engaged, based on the ethical principle of do no harm and recognition of the threat of partisanship. It's in my rationale for not doing an explicitly collaborative ethnography that I highlight some of the issues relevant for a collaborative ethnography in this field specifically. Okay, so there are three sections to my talk. Firstly, um, I think that it's important to outline the context. So how did I come to be part of the male-dominated and patriarchal world of the British military? And what was my rationale for conducting anthropological research alongside the UK's military stabilisation support group? In terms of moral debates and arguments, in effect, I'm talking through the processes I went through to gain information and knowledge. Secondly, 
I want to talk about my shifting identifications as an anthropologist and also an officer in the Royal Naval Reserves. And I'll speak about this in relation to the AAA's 2007 report on engagement with military and intelligence and security communities, which I've used and applied to my context. And then thirdly, um, I'd like to share with you a section of my ethnography in order to explore some of the complexities of collaboration. And in this piece, one of my key informants is in recounting their experience of taking part in a large military operation called Operation Mushtarak during their six-month tour in Afghanistan. My talk is rather descriptive rather than theoretical, just to warn you now, um, as I want to highlight the lived experience of carrying out research in this field. Okay, so firstly to context. Okay, so how did I come to be part of the British military? And what was my rationale for conducting anthropological research alongside the UK's military stabilisation support group? Well, my first interaction was the mili- with the military was in December 1982, when, aged around two, I'm not giving my exact age, I was taken by my mother to the Embrace the Base women's protest at RAF Green and Common in Berkshire. Now, this process involved 30,000 women during the Cold War era, and it was against the housing of 96 American nuclear warheads at the British RAF base, under the sanction of Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government. As feminist scholar Cynthia Ello comments, protests such as these were actions that have avoided top-down relationships, maximised people's spontaneous participation, and draw connections with, between militarism and women's ordinary lives. They, and this included my mother, had done this because they saw the qualities of equality, spontaneity and connectedness as the opposites of the quintessential characteristics of both patriarchy and of militarism. So now anthropologist Catherine Lutz emphasises that this study, the anthropological study of militarisation is essential and she um, uh, outlines militarisation as the contradictory, intense social process in which civil society organises itself for the production of violence. Militarisation is simultaneously a discursive process involving a shift in general societal beliefs and values in ways necessary to legitimate the use of force. The organisation of large standing armies and their leaders and the higher taxes or tribute used to pay for them. So, given the start in life, one might ask the questions, how did I come to be part of a masculine-dominated military institution? In what ways had I become militarised? How had this affected and affected my research? And was it possible to conduct research on the military without reproducing militarised patriarchy? Indeed, given the controversy over social sciences' engagements with the American Human Terrain Project... Am I an anthropologist behaving badly? Part of the answer lies in the fact that during my teenage years, I helped my father, who had a passion for the restoration of British aircraft, especially First and Second World War airplanes. I enjoyed assisting him and found these projects interesting. Influenced strongly by my father, I decided that I wanted to become a pilot, a fast jet pilot, um, as I was brought up with the belief, um, especially from my mother, that I can do anything irrespective of my gender. And so whilst doing my undergraduate degree at Manchester, I applied for the RAF, 
Um, I went through a long selection process, passing each stage before failing at the last hurdle. This was a morning of medical exams, which included sophisticated anthropometric laser measurements. And it transpired that my functional reach um, of my arms, so the measurement from here to here, sat in a machine, um, fell 1.5 millimetres too short of requirements for both navigator and fast jet pilots. <coughs> uh, the number of times I've been told, couldn't you just stretch your arms? Anyway, and so instead I joined the Royal Navy through the university's Royal Naval Unit attached to Manchester University, an example of militarisation in action. And at this point, I had the aspiration to become a helicopter pilot um, because there's not such stringent arm length requirements. And this began my 12 years of connection to the Royal Naval Reserves. And while I did some flying, basic flying training, I made the decision eventually that flying wasn't the career path I wanted to take after a few hairy experiences whilst on a two-week parachuting course with the British Army. So, following five years as an acting junior officer, a midshipman, um, within the University Royal Naval Units at Manchester, followed by Sussex, I successfully passed the three-day Royal Admiralty Interview Board, which is potential office selection, in November 2007, gaining the rank of sub-lieutenant. I then embarked on a period of basic training as a junior officer at HMS President in London, HMS King Alfred in Portsmouth, um, and part of my basic training included going through Britannia Royal Naval College, which is the equivalent to Sandhurst. And this is a picture of me on my passing out parade. Um, I have been militarised. I've had my civilian identity stripped away from me, and I'm now being presented with my new military identity here by the Commodore of the College on the right there. So I went through officer training with the view to joining the Information Operations Branch, the InfoOps Branch of the Royal Naval Reserves, so essentially, essentially intelligence gathering. The Royal Navy, with all its signs, symbols and conventions, initially dominated my experience of the military world. I was party to and embodied and reproduced the culture and customs associated with the Royal Navy. I was militarised. So how does anthropology fit in? Prior to and during my undergraduate degree, I spent time in Malaysian Borneo, carrying out surveys amongst the small fishing communities off the northern tip of Sabah. And it was this in part that stimulated my interest in anthropology. Now, I haven't written it here, and I perhaps should mention it after speaking about it earlier. Uh, my mother is also a feminist anthropologist with a focus on magic and witchcraft. Uh, so I had two very diametrically opposite parents. Um, on my return to the UK, I was able to take anthropology options in my second and third years at Manchester. And so with a growing interest in military roles, a developing interest in understanding more about conflict and violence, and a desire to learn more about anthropology, I went to Sussex to study for a Master's in the Anthropology of Conflict, Violence and Conciliation in 2003. As I progressed through the course, I began to learn about the discipline, its methods, fraught history and past relationship with institutions of power. I found myself in a unique but also troubling position of tension given my military association. But what I also found was a dearth of anthropological research on the British military, a reluctance to get close, and yet people were very quick to give opinions. I had access to the relatively bounded and closed-off world of the British military, 
And I also had personal experience of militarisation and of being part of a military institution. And I wanted to examine and to reflect on this. I also wanted to increase anthropological understanding in what appeared to be a no-go area. And perhaps rather naively, I was keen to collaborate, to build bridges, increase understanding between the worlds of anthropology and the British military. I was also looking for roles within both, perhaps a combination of the two even, and searching of ways for dis- to define myself within the structures I was part of. I wanted to take an applied activist approach within a powerful institution in a way that was useful for both the British military and anthropology. And so collaboration and the interfaces between military and civilian worlds were a key area of interest for me. I didn't want to take on a role that would require a conditioned response to a well-rehearsed battle scenario. Nor did I want the ability to dehumanise the other. Although in relation to the former, I recognised that to varying degrees this was necessary. And after discussion with my commanding officer, he introduced me to two pieces of military doctrine that would allow me to examine these interfaces further. So the first is the Military Contribution to Peace Support Operations, which was published in 2004, and the second is Civil Military Cooperation Doctrine. So in 2004, peace support operations were defined as operations that impartially make use of diplomatic, civil and military means, normally in pursuit of United Nations Charter purposes and principles to restore or maintain peace. Such operations may include conflict prevention, peacemaking, peace enforcement, peacekeeping, peace building, or and or humanitarian operations. Um, so, for example, um, these doctrines guided British military um, in, engagement in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Sierra Leone. Now, the term civil military cooperation, or CIMIC, as I'll call it, is the military name given to the points where these civil military ac- in interactions within operations occur but the doctrine stresses the allegiance to the military mission of these interactions. So at the same time, I was also becoming interested in the gender dimensions to my own military membership. And some of these gender dimensions are strikingly visible in the front covers of these two pieces of doctrine. Indeed, of the nine pieces of doctrine I examined during my research, there was only one woman on the front cover, and that was the Media Operations Doctrine. During my time in military environments, gender was simultaneously everywhere but nowhere. Gendered dimensions to military practice were heavily normalised to the point they became invisible. And yet to comprehend war, it's essential to understand these gendered dimensions. As feminist scholar Cynthia Coburn emphasises, being alert to the power relations of gender enables us to see features of armed conflict and political violence that are otherwise overlooked. And so I finished my MA and applied for PhD funding to undertake a gendered exploration within the area of CIMIC, civil military cooperation, with a focus on the negotiation of military masculinities. But I was also still interested in potentially developing a military career based in this CIMIC area. So given these interests, and as is the serendipitous way of ethnographic research, this eventually led me to the UK's Military Stabilisation Support Group, or MSSG, which was known until 2009 as the Joint CIMIC Group. The unit specialises in managing the interfaces between military and civilian worlds, and I want to introduce you to the group now. 
So today the group describes itself as a unique defence organisation that provides the UK with an array of skills and knowledge that can be used to provide military support to the civilian efforts to stabilise countries around the world that are either emerging from conflict or at risk of sliding into chaos. Now, a stabilisation operation, um, for example, Afghanistan, is defined as the process of establishing peace and security in countries affected by conflict and instability. It's in the promotion of peaceful political settlement to produce a legitimate indigenous government which can better serve its people. Stabilisation often requires external joint military and civilian support to perform some or all of the following tasks. Prevent or reduce violence, protect people and key institutions, promote political processes and prepare for longer-term development. Now, for the Ministry of Defence, one of the main challenges of this shift from peace support operations to stabilisation operations has been a reduction in autonomy the military effort becomes part of a broader political plan, and the MOD effectively now has to the answer to the FCO, Forum and Commonwealth Office. Now, the Military Stabilisation Support Group describes itself as a hybrid. It's tri-service, so that means it recruits from the Army, Navy and Air Force. It recruits regulars and reservists, officers and ranks, men and women, And as the group highlights, this blend enables the group to make the most of the regulars' capability to plan and respond to emerging crises and the reservists' civilian specialities and expertise. So the group is UK-based between Gibraltar Barracks, which is the home of the engineers in Camberley, and Corona Barracks in Luggishall in Wiltshire. And to give you a bit of more of a sense of the role, I want to play you a short clip. Um, and I should point out that it's a British Forces news production, so essentially it's military propaganda. In eight weeks' time... These men and women will be on the front line of operations in Helmand. They belong to the Military Stabilisation Support Group, the MSSG. They're the specialists who bring schools, roads, clean water and employment where previously there was none. They're now in the final phase of training. In this scenario, a patrol comes across a group of Afghans, distressed that their village has been destroyed during an ISAF attack. What they face is an individual that they've never met before, um, do, do they feel that they're a threat? Um, are they hostile? A hell of a lot to think about. Uh, and throw into that the, the negotiation and the fact that they're speaking a different language, uh, they're using an interpreter. Um, yeah, it gets quite mind boggling for them. On another part of the training area, a patrol comes under fire. They may be specialists, but in Hellman's hostile terrain, they must be soldiers first. Every man and woman must be capable of patrolling alongside the infantry battle groups they'll be attached to. The soldier inside of it allows us to get from A to B and do our job once we get there. And then the soft skills, the people skills, the dealing with the locals, that's that's our bread and butter and we'll do that on the ground. But without the skills like this to be able to get from A to B, then we're not much use to the battle group because we'll just be a burden to them. Elsewhere, a delicate negotiation is underway. In a situation typical of Helmand, the patrol wants to take over this Afghan's home with his permission. 
It's known as a soft knock. The patrol commander offers what's called an assistance payment, but the Afghan says it isn't enough and demands more money. If they can't agree a price, the Afghan army will force the family out, which risks alienating the local people. This is just one of countless difficult situations these soldiers will come across once they get to Helmand, and they can't train for every eventuality, but by being exposed to worst-case scenarios like this one, they'll at least be prepared for whatever comes their way. It's their home, so you're persuading them to leave their home. Um, I know I wouldn't like it, uh, as I'm sure most people wouldn't like having to get out of home, and trying to get over that barrier and persuade them to leave that is the hardest part about it. They know their tour will be hard, progress will be slow, and they'll be operating in dangerous conditions. And normal infantrymen will want to try and really keep the locals perhaps as far away as you can because they are afraid. They won't know, and none of us will know whether that's a potential suicide attack. Um, but part of our job is to try and assess those risks and your spider senses, if you like, start tingling and you'll know whether it's a dangerous area. Um, and that's when the training really kicks in. But we're there to talk to, talk to the locals uh, and interact with them and, and just build up that rapport and trust. It will be hard won, but that relationship with local people is vital to the success of the whole mission. Charlotte Cross, Forces News, Salisbury. Okay, so come at some of the key points from this video. Um, the... The stabilisation operatives you see here, they are soldiers first. The importance of soft knocks and soft skills. The importance of being able to gain credibility within the battle for group formations, the infantry soldiers they're um, working alongside, to be able to sell themselves and this stabilisation message. So this so-called stabilisation role they perform is flexible and fluid, but essentially there are five key areas to the role. Firstly, they specialise in liaison with a spectrum of actors, whether it's uh, local actors on the ground or it's uh, the wider British military or FCA or DFID um, operatives within stabilisation headquarters. Essentially, they are in, in, exchanging information, trying to develop mutual cooperation, intelligence gathering, essentially. They also have to support regeneration, so to stabilise local infrastructure, the economy and political structures. They also assess the civil environment in order to inform military planning. They need to feed all the information they gather into the military chain of command and let the military know how it's affecting the civil environment. They also have to increase awareness of legal and moral obligations of the military to civilian, the civilian populations. So the group has had a relatively troubled past. When I first made contact, it was going through a period of transition, shifting in function towards this concept of stabilisation, so moving from the peace support operations of the 1990s to operations in Afghanistan, essentially. So a move away from this 1990s version of CIMIC, where the CIMIC function was to separate local populations from the main military effort as a form of winning consent amongst local populations and as a form of force protection. During the 1990s, the CIMIC function was often sidelined. It was kept in the shadows and misused by military commanders. It gained the stereotype within the army as a role for engineers, second-rate military personnel, because of its distance from the real fight. 
So my interest gradually developed in this area of SIMIC and this transition towards the concept of stabilisation. And I wanted to examine how military gender identities were being negotiated and renegotiated in this transition. And I was hooked by a quote from a British Army colour sergeant which encapsulates the challenge of this shift and also some of the gender dimensions of the role. So he said, um, by being there, when the fighting stops, you can instantly get out and gather information. Civil military cooperation is sometimes seen as pink and fluffy, and we had sometimes had trouble getting access to hostile or violence environments. But we are soldiers too, and I, I ended up getting involved in some fighting while doing assessments. It's difficult and it's dangerous, but that's what we're paid to do. So the quote reflected this wider undercurrent of ambivalence in the British Army to the function and a renegotiation of military identity. The colour sergeant, in his use of the phrases pink and fluffy and difficult and dangerous, is using and also denying gendered stereotypes. The group has been tri- striving to reinvent itself, counter these stereotypes and gain respect and credibility from the army and wider British military. As the intervention in Afghanistan progressed, I found that it was actually in the military identities nurtured by the UK's military stabilisation group that the ideal set of gendered performances considered necessary for the success of British stabilised operations could be explored. And so, to get back to my field research, on a dark, cold evening in November 2008, I set off to Longmoor Military Training Camp to take part as a junior officer in the group's two-week civil military cooperation practitioners course. And it was from this two-week course that I developed the rapport with the group, found a senior military sponsor to speak on my behalf to the group's officer commanding, and was able to receive formal approval and ethical clearance from Sussex to undertake research. I began my fieldwork in January 2009 and followed one cadre of military stabilisation teams, so this is around 40 individuals, through their training and operational deployment to Afghanistan. I should probably mention at this point that I made the decision against going to Afghanistan. I objected conscientiously. So I now want to turn to my shifting identifications because obviously I'm now in a little bit of a tricky position. Um, In November 2007, the American Anthropological Association established the Commission on the Engagement of Anthropology with the US Security and Intelligence Communities. Two years later, in November 2005, the Commission released its final report on the anthropological engagement with military intelligence and security communities. The report recognises the considerable tension within the discipline towards such engagement. However, and importantly, the Commission cautions against blanket condemnation or affirmation of anthropologists working in national security. It pointed out that that actually made little sense and in itself was problematic. The report acknowledges the myriad forms that contemporary anthropological engagement can take, but outlines three very broad categories. Firstly, engagement as a civilian, um, as a faculty member at a military or intelligent college. Secondly, as consultants employed by militaries. And thirdly, and most controversially, as field workers. The report is a framework that can be used to carefully analyse individual engagements with institutions of power, and it importantly makes the point that the challenge will increasingly be to define ethically defensible research in complex environments of collaboration. 
The report advocates a descriptive rather than a prescriptive approach, encouraging anthropologists working within these environments to present their cases in order for opportunities to be mined and pitfalls to be avoided. The report also makes another important point, that it's essential to differentiate between activities that are politically distasteful and those that are ethically problematic. So by this it means drawing distinctions between anthropological research and between intelligence gathering, focusing on the activity itself and not whether one agrees with the politics that motivated a war or what might, it might serve to serve or inhibit. So given this heightened ethical but also clash of moral environments and the politics of my own military membership, my options in terms of methodology required very careful reflection. Should I take on a role as an officer in one of these stabilisation teams and deploy operationally to Afghanistan? Essentially, I would be interacting with local populations, I'd be building rapport, I'd be gathering intelligence that would feed into what's called the IPE, the Intelligence Preparation of the Environment. I I would be in a military role, so I'd be in uniform, and my my allegiance would have to be to the military mission. I guess I would also be known as what's termed a soldier scholar, albeit uh, my parents' service being the Royal Navy, so blending my academic and military backgrounds so in a practical and activist way. But as the Commission has highlighted, operational fieldwork and anthropologists assisting with intelligence gathering is the most controversial form of engagement. Would my PhD fieldwork have the aim of supporting operations on the ground? I would potentially be taking a much more controversial position than the human terrain system, and the strong debates in relationship to this would apply to me too, especially in relation to the discipline's ethical codes. And this raised numerous perils, obligations to those studied, perils for the discipline and my colleagues, perils for the academic community, and issues in relation to secrecy and transparency. What were the implications of letting the objectives of the group and the military mission guide the direction of my research? What effect would my own militarisation have on this process? What biases would I have? Could this be a collaborative ethnography if I was too much on the inside? How far would I be able to critically diverge, ethically, politically and epistemologically, given the power relationships I was part of? And what control would I have of the knowledge I produced? How would it be used or not used? Um, And as a short aside in relation to how knowledge is used, um, one of my informants recounted to me their experience of an anthropologist anthropologist who's working for rather than on the British military. I just want to read what they said to you. The data that the anthropologists produced was very interesting, but I think I was the only one, I was the only people, one of the only people that actually read it. I have a background of looking at data and knowing when it's usable and when it's just reporting figures. What was very interesting was that one of the pieces of data they produced was that there wasn't unemployment in Nadi Ali. Most people had jobs. This was at the same time that the brigade commander was banging on about creating mass employment and Victorian-style chain gangs and all of this kind of stuff. I showed him the research he had commissioned, but he wasn't remotely interested. I felt a bit sorry for this anthropologist. I think they actually did some quite good work, but I think it got largely ignored. The military likes using statistics to prove what it already thinks it knows, in exactly the same way that politicians do. 
they're not actually very good at looking at the data and saying, what does this tell me about what's happening? And so with this in mind, um, my second option, is, and this is the approach I decided to take, was to take stock, attempt to recognise and heed the perils highlighted by the AAA. I wanted to ensure that I was able to critically diverge, ethically, politically and epistemologically. But to do this, I had to examine my own militarisation, the degrees to which I was already collaborating and the relationships of power I was part of and reproducing consciously and unconsciously. It was for this reason that I pulled back and started to slowly limit my military membership in order to gain critical distance. Although even despite doing this, my supervisors were very concerned that I still wasn't coming back from the field, which kind of shows how far in and how far militarised I was. Now, two phases stuck, phrases stuck with me from early in my research. The first, how can you do it? How can you be in the military? And this was from an anthropologist, a senior university academic. And the second was, um, when I was talking to them in relation to gender, you're not going to go all politically correct on us, are you? So the first reflects an intense antipathy towards military institutions as the patriarchal instruments of organised state violence. This includes antagonism towards the methods military institutions employ to militarise their recruits, the part gender plays within these methods in creating specific military masculinities, and how these masculinities are reproduced after training. It also relates to the practical techniques of violence that military, militaries employ, kinetic and non-kinetic action, phrases that belie the inherent violence of each. The second quote is a very typical military response that does not see gender as an issue in the forces, a reminder or warning against challenging the status quo overtly to see a, a very junior female officer. And so to retain critical distance, I, want, I wanted to connect and remain connected with the uncomfortableness generated by both of these quotes. So in a sense, I found my limits of collaboration, but I still wanted to communicate between both. And so, given my position within the military hierarchy, and by focusing on autoethnography and participant observation, I consciously attempted to retain power and control. This positioning allowed me to develop and examine my shifting identifications. And here I found the work of Kirin Narayan very, very useful. Rather than inside or outsider, Narayan argues that it might be more profitable to see each anthropologist in terms of shifting identifications amid a field of interpenetrating communities and power relations, and also that the loci along which we are aligned with or set apart from those whom we studied are multiple and in flux. And this was exactly the case for me. The ways in which I was aligned, I converged, and set apart, diverged, were multiple, complex and fluid. And so, with all of this in mind, I drew on the opportunities of my membership, my experience and my access. And as the AAA emphasises, there are three broad areas of opportunity. So the first is through education. Educating the military about the discipline anthropologies fraught history with institutions of power. But education requires contact. Highlighting how anthropology can be used as a form of cultural critique within an organisation. Secondly, expanding the discipline into new spheres. And this addresses this uncomfortableness and reluctance of the discipline to engage. And thirdly, studying an organisation from the inside, 
As the report emphasises, to develop a more nuanced understanding of how power, how hidden cultures of power actually function, of studying up. And again, they make the point that ethnographies of powerful people remain few and far between. And in doing so, this will help us to grasp the internal diversity or discursive complexity of these institutions. And so it was for these reasons I decided to take on a UK-based organisational study of the Military Stabilisation Support Group to use autoethnography and where I could participate and observe the training processes that the MSSG members were going through. And so it was in my rationale for not doing an explicit collaborative ethnography um, and it's centred on three main points. Firstly, I was working within a powerful and hierarchical patriarchal institution By supporting it, would I potentially be further skewing the power imbalance? Secondly, a dilemma. dilemma. Which discourse should I privilege? A feminist critique or the state's rhetoric? And thirdly, who would be my audience? In assisting the MSSG, am I helping them to become more efficient in gathering intelligence? So for these reasons, I didn't feel that I was in a position to do an explicitly collaborative ethnography because of the heightened ethical area I was in and also because of my own military membership. It was about connecting with the complex moral and ethical disconnects to ensure that I was being critical. So finally, in my last section um, at time, um, I'd like to share some of my ethnography with you in order to explore some of the complexities of collaboration in this space. Um, so I'm going to talk about Operation Mushtarak. Um, don't get too bogged down in this diagram. It's just to, um, to, to show the area um, and the scale of what was happening. Um, so um, Sam, and this is a pseudonym, is one of my key informants, um, a warrant officer who I first met on the group's practitioner's course and then shadowed through parts of his training. Sam and I had developed a good level of rapport over a two-year period. We met again on his return from Afghanistan. We sat on a picnic bench outside the cookhouse at the MSSG's training base at Corona Barracks in Wiltshire. Sam tells me about his experience of the large military push or surge operation of his six-month tour called Operation Mushtarak, which means togetherness in Dari. He's recounting the story and is an example of a successful stabilisation mission. Operation Mushtarak represented a new approach as the scheme of manoeuvre was being widely and openly broadcast. So this was was on Sky News, it was everywhere. So everyone knew it was going to be happening um, and the military were terrified about this. So I want to read you part of Sam's story. To forewarn you, it's quite lengthy. Um, um, And as I read, could I ask you to think about and note any points where you think collaborative ethnography could happen in my ethnographic practice? And we can perhaps talk about this afterwards in the discussion. And once I've read, I'm going to give you my general general analysis from my stance as a participant observer and also after negotiating my own shifting identifications with this. So as Sam spoke, I was transported to the dusty, dry heat of Afghanistan and experienced a hint of the fear, anticipation and adrenaline of waiting to insert. At 0400 hours on Saturday the 13th of February, D-Day, under the cover of darkness, Operation Mushtarak began, the biggest aviation assault operation since the Vietnam War. And as San tells me, 
I was very lucky. I didn't have to shoot anybody. In fact, when we went into the village, Task Force Helmand had ramped the whole of Mushtarak up to be this monster of a fucking attack. The intelligence report for the village was that there were 50 insurgents dug in. They'd IED'd the helicopter landing site. They had machine gun overlaunch onto the landing site and they were willing to fight. So we had one Merlin helicopter go into Mushtarak on D-Day at 0400 hours and I was on the fucker. There were 15 Special Forces support group, there were eight Afghan task force, there were eight one Royal Welsh, and there was me and the medic staff sergeant and an engineer staff sergeant who was there to build the patrol bases once it had all settled down. They were asserting the engineer because they didn't expect to be able to get back there. It was going to be cut off. The timeline from D-Day to D plus 10 was meant to be our 10 days of fighting into the village to get to the centre where the mosque was, hold the mosque, hold Ashura and explain what we were up to and what we see happen from there. I remember getting on the Merlin, last man on, which means I'm the first fucking man off, thinking I'm 40. I shouldn't be doing this. This is fucking daft. I looked across at the engineer staff sergeant, who's going, this is wrong, this is fucking wrong. Why are we the first people off the aircraft? The medic was behind him going, do you think I ought to be at the back because I'm going to be needing to stitch people back together again when they get blown up on the deck? Fifteen minutes later, I thought, fucking hell. We hit the deck, door down, helmet mountain vision system is on, and I ran off thinking I'm going straight into a bit of a battle here. But no battle. And we ended up walking towards the compound we were going to, which was 200 metres short of the village. Walk in there, taking it over, not around fired. The sun came up, a small group of people started to congregate at the end of the village, and I thought, well, there's two ways it can go. By this time, the young lieutenant and captain had realised that I'd been their company quartermaster at Sandhurst and one had started to go, oh, Q, what do I do, what do I do? So I said, well, we need to go and have a look at them, have a chat with them. And he said, well, what happens if they fucking decide to kick off? And I said, we'll fucking slot the lot of them. I said, if we're going to kick off, it's going to be at you, at us, so you just return fire. None of them wanted to do it. They wanted to fortify their position and get ready for the kick-off. But I thought, well, there are kids there, there are women there, they're not there to fight. It was glaringly obvious. They could have been, and it probably would have drifted that way if we'd let it go, but it didn't drift that way because I didn't give it time. The intelligence guy said, fucking hell, I've been in a lot of battles with these fuckers. They're real shitbags, these insurgents, they're good, he said. But if anything happens, keep your fucking head down because the Afghan task force just kill everything. So we put one of the general purpose machine gun on top of the compound and we patrolled down towards the villages with me and the intelligence guy out in front. The main road was meant to be IED'd, which meant we were going to be the fucking dummies that got it first. We walked down towards them and started having a chat with them with the interpreter. And I said, well, can you take us down there? And they went, yeah, sure. And there must have been about 60 of them. And they surrounded me and the intelligence guy and we walked all the way down the 200 yards to the centre of the village by which time the young captain and the special forces support group were like, fucking hell, cloud nine, like that. But at the same time, oh my God, we're going to get hit in a minute, we're going to get hit in a minute. The one Royal Welsh were shitting themselves. The Afghan task force were bayonets drawn, ready to go. We got into the centre of the village. I walked into the shop, bought a crate of coke, helmet off, rifle on my back, and it turned out that the villagers were really peace-loving hippies. We love our village. Come on in and have a fucking chat. I said, come on then, go and get everybody from the village. And they went, what? I said, go and get everyone from the village. 300 people sat at the mosque outside. We all had a coke, by which time everybody started to calm down a bit. 
I held a Shura, had a chat, explained why we were there, and they went, you ain't want to live like down there, mate, come on. And they took us round to another new compound that had just been built with a beautiful house on it, and they said, you can use that one. Right in the centre of town it was. We sat there and I thought, that's mad. And I remember sitting there going, right, it's D-Day. I ain't got the fuck what we're going to do until D-day, D plus 10, because I've already held the Shura that I'm meant to have held on D plus 10. We've had no fighting. For the next 15 days, we held Shura after Shura. We had meals, we had barbecues, the lot, with the locals, you know, just to show willing. They absolutely loved it. They couldn't have done anything more for us if they tried. They used to turn up at the door, he whispers to me. Are we having a Shura today? And we go, yep, about 10 o'clock. And they go, righto. And they come in, crates of coke, you know, these fucking stupid cakes they have. Crates of them. I bought goats off them, rice, and held parties. Absolutely loved it. Task Force Hellman had seen this time frame, if you know, for D to D plus 10, they'd be fighting hard, we were expecting 50% casualties, 30% losses, none of it happened. So it was, as the colonel put it, the required effect, which was that we had a complete letdown, which was what we wanted and it worked. And by the end of the time there, the Special Forces Support Group were with us, they were doing it, these stabilisation activities as well, and they were using it really well, you know, their own advantage to their own advantage, I thought, well, you can't do anything more than that because every person there became a stabilisation rep, if you like, because they were all doing exactly the same thing. So for Sam, this was an example of a successful stabilisation operation. He was able to influence the troops around him to take a soft, non-kinetic approach. He was able to communicate with the villagers. He was able to influence them and impart some of his knowledge of stabilisation practices, the troops he would... He'd helped ensure his skill sets and his approach had been adapted. On the one hand, this can be seen as a successful stabilisation operation for the occupying forces. No one was killed and so-called stabilisation activities took place in the village. An alternative reading is that this is neo-colonialism in action and that such intelligence gathering activities have the potential to be much more dangerous and destabilising for local populations due to their intended and unintended effects. Sam recounts this experience to me with the expectation that I will agree, and that in telling me, I will use this as a positive news story, as an advocate for the function of the group. As an anthropologist, and given the general hostile attitude to military intervention, and coming from the position of a critical participant observer, this is my analysis in relation to my research focus. So... In conflict theatres such as Afghanistan, the emblematic warrior masculinity of the engaged militarised combatant has been challenged deeply by population-centred counterinsurgency and stabilisation practices that centre on so-called soft-power, non-kinetic weapon systems, of which Sam's story is a good example. This shift has been driven in part by the soldier scholars, white, predominantly male, high-ranking military officers with doctoral degrees, for example, American General David Petraeus. A gendered analysis of this shift reveals the endorsement and cultivation of an expanded spectrum of masculinities that foregrounds the empathetic, softer masculinity of the restrained military facilitator. Once trained, these hybrid soldiers or military stabilisation operatives become the specialist, intelligent, rank-and-file equivalents of the soldier scholars, the frontline agents of soft-power, non-kinetic warfare. This is achieved in part through mastery of what I term a chameleon masculinity, 
Stabilisation operators have the ability to hide in plain sight in a range of contexts by advocating, embodying and producing a carefully prescribed range of gender performances crafted around this concept of stabilisation, or as one soldier scholar has described it, multiple personalities. A focus on the chameleon-like nature of this masculinity genders the hybrid soldier and in doing so demonstrates how the British military have adapted to counterinsurgency and stabilisation. It also highlights some of the strong tensions and paradoxes recruits have faced when embodying and negotiating this empathetic, softer but potentially much more dangerous, violent and intangible masculinity of the restrained military facilitator. So this is part of my analysis, and given the choices I've taken through my research, I've used this to begin to develop the concept of Camino masculinity, specifically in relation to the stabilisation role, But what could a more collaborative ethnographic approach, perhaps with Sam, reveal? And maybe we could just discuss this shortly. And yet I've been very cautious about writing about my research and my thesis is currently embargoed. I've needed time to gain further critical distance before deciding how to present my work publicly. I should also mention that I resigned from the military after submitting my PhD thesis. So given the time, I I should now conclude. Um, So I've shared with you some of my experiences of engaging with a powerful institution of the British military, as well as the choices I've made in negotiating this engagement. I've also spoken about some of the ways in which I collaborated in the complex environment I found myself in by becoming aware of my shifting identifications. I pointed out in my introduction that it was in my rationale for not doing a collaborative ethnography that I highlight some of the issues relevant for an explicitly collaborative ethnography in this field. So power relationships, um, competing discourses and audience. At present, this is a very lonely field within anthropology and it would be good to have more anthropologists involved. Um, My trajectory through my fieldwork was in part to work through my own moral positioning which has the value of increasing understanding in this very uncomfortable area. I started with a desire, um, in a sense, to do a form of collaborative ethnography, but then reined myself back as I learnt about the complexities of engaging in this space, the risks and benefits of collaboration and the potential life and death implications that such collaborations could directly and indirectly entail. Anthropology has actually helped me to demilitarise, however much this is possible, and also to start to develop a critical understanding of the institution I was part of. I think it's important to open up this field, but this needs to be done carefully. Collaborative ethnography, where the recognition of the opportunities and dangers, could be a possible option. Um, Finally, I'd like to mention that I have chosen to collaborate um, in another way, with an emerging and growing group of critical feminist scholars, um, predominantly coming from IR and sociology. In fact, I'm the only anthropologist I'm aware of, again, um, and centering around the new Critical Military Studies Journal up here. And one output from this will be a double special edition of CMS that I'll be co-editing on the theme of embodying militarism and exploring the spaces and bodies in between. So researchers working in this area will explore this complex emotional negotiation. That's it. Thank you very much.